Greetings, brothers and sisters. Let us start with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, help me to preach faithfully and help us to listen with attentive faith, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. As Christians, we acknowledge that God is in total control over everything. This knowledge that God is in control is a great comfort. No matter what happens around the world, we will say, God is king yesterday, today, and tomorrow. We can even be a little proud because, hey, we are God's people and he is the boss. It's a little bit like working in a company when the president of the company is your father. But friends, when calamity or disasters comes up and touches you, how do you think of God's sovereignty? When you or a loved one suddenly gets diagnosed with cancer, when you lose your job and you're not so sure what to do, when depression hits you and you feel that it is better to die than to live, how do we think of God's sovereignty then? Well, today, friends, we see Jesus as he gets put on that cross and as he is touched by suffering and despair, and as we see that, I would like to challenge you to also look at your own life and difficulties and how you have responded to God in those circumstances. We come to the first part of our passage, starting at verse 16. For those who have been following our series, you would have followed the narrative as we saw Jesus being tried unjustly, denied justice by Pilate, as he was more concerned about his political situation. And we also see Christ rejected by his own people. And at this point, Pilate declares that he will follow the will of the Jewish leader and crucify him. So Pilate delivers Jesus to the soldier to be crucified. We then see Jesus bearing his own cross in this scene. As Isaiah 53 verse 2 tells us about the servant Christ, he was despised and rejected by men. And so we see that Jesus went to the crucifixion site alone, rejected by his people, rejected even by his disciples who have fled away to save themselves. The early church fathers saw a little more in this passage. They saw a connection between this account and how Isaac was brought by Abraham to be sacrificed. Just like Isaac, we saw that Christ was bound. And now, just like Isaac, he bears the wood on which he will be sacrificed as he climbs the hill where he is to be killed. Perhaps at this point, we will be wondering, will Christ be spared by God like Isaac was? Will, will God provide a replacement for his sacrifice? After all, this is his only son that he loves, just as Isaac was to Abraham. Yet we come to verse 18 and we see no reprieve. Unlike Isaac, who was meant to show us a foreshadowing of the sacrifice of Christ, Jesus is the real thing, the fulfillment of that shadow that Isaac represented. And so his sacrifice is going to be real and there's going to be no last minute changes in God's plan. Since crucifixions were not allowed inside the city walls, they took him outside of the city walls and he went to Golgotha, the place of a skull. Being taken out of Jerusalem, the city of God, to die, 
is a metaphorical picture of someone who's cast away from the congregation of God's people and the safety of being in God's city. It is in this state that we find Jesus. And once again, if we come to Isaiah, we will see in Isaiah 53 verse 8, that by oppression and judgment he was taken away. He was cut off and stricken, just as Jesus was. We come to verse 18, and we see that Jesus was then crucified. And we also see that Jesus was put in the center, together with two criminals, one on each side. He was numbered with the transgressors, as Isaiah 53 puts it. Again, John writes to show us how Jesus is fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah written 700 years before the crucifixion. And so, as Jesus was crucified, we also see that Pilate put up an inscription. Now, this inscription is meant to be a headboard that lists out why that person is being crucified. The charge sheet for their crimes, you can say. And this was what Jesus' inscription said. Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Now, we can see that this was done to mock Jesus and probably is the way that Pilate chooses to embarrass the Jews for making him be the one who had to deal with Jesus. Pilate was bullied into doing something he was not comfortable with and now he gets his chance to teach the Jews a lesson. It is this charge that was leveled against Jesus and this is why he was found on the cross, that he is the king of the Jews. This is why we see John here hinting at all the prophecies that Isaiah speaks of when he prophesies about the Christ. John is rubbing it in to show that actually the irony of the situation was that Jesus is the king of prophecy, the king of the Jews, even though his kingdom is not of this world. He wants to show that the Jews were wrong and they have done this terrible thing to the very Christ that they were waiting for. He wants them to know that they have messed up. Christ was truly the King of the Jews. He was the son of David who came to save his people. Yet we find him here stricken and abandoned, dying on that hill because his own people have rejected him. Has he failed then? How has his coming not led to the salvation of the Jews? This would be what a Jew reading this account at that time would be wondering, wouldn't they? Well, John hints again at the answer to that as he comes to verse 20. And here we see that many Jews read this inscription. And not only that, this proclamation was written in all the different languages of that region so that anyone passing by can read it. In a sense, we start to see the gospel being proclaimed to all here, Jew or Gentile, as you pass by that crucified Jesus you will see the declaration. Here is the king of the Jews as you see him dying. It is meant to mock. Pilate meant this to be a dig at the Jews. Yet the proclamation remains a true statement that invites those who see this to come and find out more. And as he is raised up from the dead and this is proclaimed, imagine the effect that this would have on those who were there and saw for themselves this Jesus who was lifted up on that cross. Jesus, John, is writing this gospel then for the sake of the many who passed by and read this inscription. He is here calling on them to believe and come to salvation 
For that is the very purpose of this Gospel of John. Then we come to verse 21. And naturally the Jews were upset by that sign. They get to Pilate and, and they know that Pilate is mocking them. But they were more concerned that people may believe. And so they asked him to amend what he has written to say, This man said, I am the king of the Jews. They really don't want people to get the wrong idea. And they wanted to make sure that Jesus is cast as a rebel who deserves this punishment. Yet Pilate does not want to change what he has written. It has now become a formal legal decree and he will not allow for his word to be altered. At this point, we can appreciate the irony, can't we? Because ultimately, Jesus is on that cross because of the decree of God, which he had revealed to us in Scripture. And God, too, will not change his word. And so we are reminded from Isaiah that while it was Pilate who sent Jesus to be crucified, while it was the leaders of the Jews who pushed for his death sentence, it is God who is in control over all these things, for it was his decree from the very beginning. Isaiah 53.10 Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Friends, journey back to the time of this narrative as you read John. Behold for yourself the crucified Christ that John proclaims here. Just as the people who read the sign would have wondered about this seemingly foolish idea of a saviour king who's crucified, there may be some of us who may wonder also, how can he save anyone if he is crucified here? When we go back to Isaiah, we find the answer to this. According to Isaiah 53, Jesus hangs on that cross to take on the punishment for our sins and acts as our substitute. So when we hear the proclamation of the gospel, as we come to him and believe in him as the king who comes to save us, it is our sins that were paid for at that cross through Jesus. Isaiah 53 verse 5, But he was pierced for our transgression, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. He is on that cross because that is how God offers us salvation, through his faithful servant king. If you have not put your trust in Christ, then friends, I urge you to come to him now. If you are like those who saw him on the cross and did not know what to believe in, then come to the very word of scripture that records and testifies to who Jesus is. If you don't know where to start, come and talk to your Christian friends or drop a note in our online communication card. The king who came to save us from our sins hangs on that cross so that you may have this offer of salvation presented to you. Take heed, friends. This is news with eternal consequences. Next then, John moves on to verse 23, where we see another scene play out. The soldiers who crucified Jesus by Roman law are entitled to take everything that the person being crucified has on them. Think of it as their tips for doing the job. So they took his clothes and they divided it amongst them. However, the tunic that Jesus was wearing was seamless and woven in one piece. And since it would be a shame to tear it, they then decided to gamble to see who will get it. It's a small detail, barely worth mentioning. But John makes it clear 
why he is pointing us to this. Because he points back to a quote from Psalm 22. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. While the other gospel writer brings us to Psalm 22, through the suffering of the Christ, John takes a roundabout approach and brings us back to this same psalm through how they divided the tunic and cast lots. You can see that John is trying to show the evidence that this really is the man that scripture talks about. The Jews at that time would have understood John's Old Testament reference. They will understand the point that John is making here. Jesus truly is the Christ, despite what the Jewish leaders have been claiming. David's life was meant as a foreshadowing of the ultimate Christ to come. And this is that person, the one who is being crucified before them. Here he is, the son of David, the son of man who comes with the cloud, the son of God upon whom is given the eternal kingdom of God. And you have crucified him. How will you respond when you realize this horror that you have committed? John is asking the Jews. We have to understand that John's gospel is written later than the other gospel, and thus he would be writing especially to those who, despite hearing the gospel from Matthew, Mark, and Luke, still have not responded by repenting and coming to Jesus. Thus he writes it in such a manner so that those who persist in rejecting Jesus will be challenged and have no more excuses. How can you explain this fulfillment of prophecy if Jesus was not Christ? You can't. The Jews today, who are still holding on to that Old Testament, they are still waiting for Christ to come because they are unable to see that he has already come, that he has fulfilled scripture through his death and resurrection. They are waiting for a Christ to come in their own image and ideas, not the Christ that scripture presents. Now, in the same way, there may be those here who grew up in Christian homes or are familiar with the gospel, and yet they do not believe. Can I be bold here and challenge you? If Jesus is not who he says, how is he able to fulfill the things that were prophesied about him many hundreds of years before he was even born to Mary? Are you rejecting him because he doesn't fit your image of what you want the Savior to be? Are you expecting the Savior to come teaching and asking you to live as you want? Or is he going to come and teach us to live as God wants us to live? The Jews rejected him back then for these reasons. Are you doing the same thing? Have you pondered this? Or are your hearts hardened like the Jews back then? John speaks to you too here then as he shows us the fulfillment of scripture. In the final section then, we see a contrast. The soldiers did this thing out of wickedness, but then look, in contrast to their evil and their rejection of Jesus, we see standing by the cross, the mother of Jesus, the beloved disciple, who I take to be John himself, and a few people who knows him. Absent, of course, with the rest of the disciple, but that's not the main point that John is seeking to make here. Here's the point. In verse 26, we see that Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved. And he said to Mary, Behold your son. And to that disciple, Behold your mother. Jesus is telling Mary that this disciple would be as a son to her and will take care of her. 
and he's telling the disciple to care for Mary as if his own mother. He does this so that she will not worry about what will happen to her. Now, if this was us hanging on that cross, riddled with excruciating pain from the scourging and beating, the nails driven through your hands and feet, every breath a struggle, the last thing on our mind is to care for others. But our king is not like that. Even then, under those terrible circumstances, he seeks to care for his mother and remind his disciple what godliness, love and discipleship looks like. This is the king we follow, the one that loves and cares for all who depends on him. Even in the depths of his suffering, he loves and he protects. Another point to note also, now we know that Jesus has other siblings who could care for Mary, but at this time, they're not believers. So he entrusts his mother to a fellow believer to care for as if his own mother. And in that same manner, we too are meant to show this kind of love to each other, bearing each other's burden, sharing together in our rejoicing and sorrows. What does this look like for you? How is your attitude towards the concerns of other believers, towards the worries that are close to their hearts? Do we seek to serve them and seek to put their worries to ease? That disciple did. And from that hour, it took her to his own home to care for her. And so we come to the end to see how this applies to us. We have seen in this passage the sovereignty of God here. And surely this is something for us to ponder. All that happens to us is part of God's will. He is in control. We can learn from Job who asked the very same question. Shall we accept good from God and shall we not accept evil? Following God isn't about getting a ticket to a good life. It is about responding faithfully no matter what the circumstances, good or bad. So even in the worst of situations, know that you can trust God. Even as you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, know that you can trust God. Even if it leads to death, you can trust God. You know why? Because Christ bled and died for you at that cross. That is God's commitment to show you that ultimately He will make all things right. That is what Christ modeled for you as he trusted God in all things. Yet we tend to become bitter when pain and suffering comes on us. We think God is asleep on the wheel, or we think God is not good. But all the time, God is good. Next point. If you don't still believe in Jesus, then come and see that this gospel that is promising you salvation is offered to you today. As you listen to the words preached today, there will be a nagging feeling then to see, are these things true? Now our hearts are hard and sinful, and we will let this go away, or we will justify it somehow because we don't want to accept Jesus as king. And this is exactly what the Jews did back then. But Jesus died on that cross. Any historian will tell you that, Christian or non-believer. So why not continue to find out why are Christians willing to follow Jesus at such great cost? The gospel challenges you. Will you listen 
and seek God? Or will you harden your heart because you refuse to come to your Creator and listen to what He tells you that you need for your salvation? Finally, let us see here how much God loves us that He is willing to send His Son to die for us. Even Christ, who perfectly shows God to us, shows this great love in how He cares even when He is suffering. So will you not put your faith in Him and put your trust in Him no matter what may come? Rest secure in the knowledge that God truly loves you even in the depths of your suffering. God does have a plan for you and He will bring you to be with Him among the people that He loves. There will be no tears in heaven. So until then, be strong and carry on. Because by faith in what Christ achieves on that cross, you know that you belong in heaven. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you that Christ suffered. Thank you that Christ died. And Father, we thank you because we know you did this out of your love for us. That Christ laid down his life because he loved us. And so, help us, Father, to remember this. Help us to, to be strengthened in our faith as we go through this. Please be at work in our hearts. Please help us to respond rightly, no matter what the circumstances are. And help us, Father, to love like you have loved us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.